We are continuing just part two today of a new series in Nehemiah. So let's turn there to chapter two after Ezra, before Esther. And if you have, um, want to use the Pew Bible, then you can turn to page 398. We read the first uh, eight verses. This is God's word. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I, and this is Nehemiah speaking, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, That you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I'd given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is the word of our Lord, and it stands forever, and it speaks to us tonight. I'm hoping that, um, you know... Struggle for preachers as, they, as we work on our sermons throughout the week is coming up with a captivating opening illustration. While I'm hoping that the sermon title is captivating enough, how to do great things for God. I think anything that begins with how to usually captures our attention, gets our focus. Since we're so desperate uh, for answers, for solutions, we call them life hacks now. We want to know how to do stuff and how to do it better. But then the idea of doing great things for God, well, that is appealing, isn't it? As Christians, don't we all have, or shouldn't we all have, a desire deep down in our hearts to be a servant that could be used mightily for the sake of our God? Is that not a good thing, to want to do great things for God? Well, we cannot deny that Nehemiah was used greatly by God. He's an ordinary man who is given an extraordinary mission. For over 100 years, the walls of Jerusalem have laid in ruins, and any attempts to rebuild so far have failed. But when we'll get, when, by the time we get to the end of the book of Nehemiah, we'll discover that this one man, this uh, city planner, uh, this, this civil engineer, has finally accomplished the task that has been eluding God's people for over a century, and he does it in 52 days. In 52 days, he rebuilds the city walls. Nehemiah did great things for God. 
And the question is, how was he situated to do so? And how can we be situated? Uh, Do you want to find out how you can do great things for God? Well, you've come to the right place tonight. We learn three things from our texts uh, which show how Nehemiah prepared himself to be used in such a mighty way and three things that can prepare us too. So, three steps. So easy, isn't it? Three steps to be used mightily by God and do amazing things for him. Step number one, pray. You were hoping for something more exciting than that. Pray. Uh, This is it. This is as profound as we get. It's the first thing that Nehemiah does, and it's the most important thing that Nehemiah does. Uh, As the saying goes, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Have you heard that? It's been often attributed to John Bunyan. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. It's the starting point, and it's the most important point. Nehemiah prays first. Let's, let's set the stage again, a little refresher of where we're at uh, from last week. Chapter 2 opens, you'll note, with, a, with a, um, a, a notice on the date. We're in the month of Nisan, which is four months after the news came to Nehemiah in chapter 1. Verse 1, now it happened in the month of Kislev. So four months later, and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But right now, we notice that Nehemiah is doing his job. He told us at the end of chapter 1, now I was cupbearer to the king. Remember we said, wow, he, he withheld almost the most important information till the very end. And he kind of just threw it out there like it was non, uh, inconsequential. And yet, uh, the brevity of that statement uh, betrays the importance of it. Or, I mean, it, 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 it does not convey the importance of it. Because to be the cupbearer of the king means he was uh, the right-hand man of the king. He was a trusted advisor. He was always in the king's presence. We said God had placed in Susa, in the capital of God's enemies, the Persian kingdom, he had placed a man. He was his inside man. Somebody providentially situated to do something about the situation of Israel. And... Uh, Nehemiah, now at the beginning of chapter 2, he's doing his job as a cupbearer. Wine is before the king. I took wine and I gave it to the king. He's done this a thousand times. And yet something seems off today to Artaxerxes. And what seems off is Nehemiah in particular. Nehemiah looks a little odd. Now, these paranoid Persian kings were good at at detecting discrepancies and oddities in those around them. And so his question to Nehemiah... In verse 2, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? In other words, why do you look so miserable? Because I know you're not ill. Reading between the lines, what he's saying is, what's going on, Nehemiah? What are are you up to? What's, What's really going on here? That's why Nehemiah's answer begins with, let the king live forever, in verse 3. He's basically showing his hands, I'm not armed. I know you're a little concerned because I I look odd today and you're wondering, is he scheming about how he's going to poison me today? Let the king live forever. That's not what's going on here, Nehemiah says. I come unarmed. But then he proceeds very cautiously and he brings up the situation back at his home in Jerusalem. He never actually mentions Jerusalem. You see what he says there? He says in verse 3, or in verse, yeah, in verse 3, why should not my face be sad when the city, 
the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed. Uh, Nehemiah is perhaps being quite um, strategic here in omitting the name Jerusalem as it would have, as we say nowadays, triggered uh, the Persian king, right? And so he is gently approaching the subject. He's He's uh, getting to his point, but kind of through a circuitous route. And yet the king knows what he's referring to. You can imagine his, ne- his eyes narrowing when Nehemiah says this, and he basically responds with, get to the point. What, what do you want? What are you asking for? Have you ever been there before? Maybe in a, um, one of your less sanctified moments, you encounter somebody on the street, and they have a, a story, a story about how, the medical bills have piled up uh, about how they, they don't have enough money uh, to pay for their rent. They just need uh, to get from, from this city to the next. If they could just grab a, a bus ticket, and they're kind of telling you the whole story. And the reason is because their grandma was supposed to be here the week before to help with the kids, but then she didn't come. So it was supposed to be daycare, but then the daycare place closed. And, of course, you know, with COVID now and all the – and you just want to go, what are you asking for? Just tell me what you want. Is it money? What, what's going on? That's the king right here. Just cut to the chase, Nehemiah. What do you want? Don't give me a sob story. And so what does Nehemiah do when he's finally given the opportunity to lay it out before the king? The king says, the end of verse 4, or in the middle of verse 4, what are you requesting? And what does Nehemiah do? He prays. He doesn't leave the room. He doesn't say, please, you know, give, me a, give me a few minutes to discuss this with my God. Look how fast-paced the narrative there in verses 4 and 5 is. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, back to back. I prayed, and then I said. It's a nanosecond prayer. Did you know you could pray nanosecond prayers? Some of us need to learn that our prayers could be longer, I think. Right? Um, We need to learn that simply saying... Thank you for this food once or twice doesn't really count as having a healthy prayer life. But maybe some of us would also benefit to know that God hears even the briefest, even the least intelligible prayers when they are prayed in faith. Did you hear that? That God receives and accepts even the briefest prayers, the the, the prayers that are just thrown together haphazardly, when they're prayed in faith. I remember being so helped in college by a tiny insight, a little insight, when reading Paul Miller's uh, famous book, A Praying Life. He said that when he found himself overwhelmed and wearied and not sure what to pray, he started using a three-word prayer, Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Well, sometimes when we're faced with a dilemma a crisis, a, a moment of urgency like Nehemiah has here, we think, well, I don't have time to pray about this. I don't really have time to think it through. I don't have time to collect my thoughts before God. Well, that's not true because you can always pray, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Nehemiah prays a help me, Jesus kind of prayer here. But that briefest prayer, prayed in faith, gets you all the benefits any prayer could ever offer. He receives the ear of Almighty God, the help of the Holy Spirit, uh, the full resources of the heavenly places become open to Nehemiah and to all who pray 
in this manner. It's a, it's this sort of arrow prayer, right? You can just shoot up in a moment's notice. Do you have that as part of your arsenal and your uh, spiritual fight against the flesh and the world and the devil? You never know when you'll be placed in a situation where it seems like everything is on the line and you need to make a decision right away. No time to think about it. The, the response you give to your spouse in that heated moment could have far-reaching consequences. Or the way in which you interact with your boss in the workplace. The way you turn the wheel as the headlights come right for you. But did you know, in all those moments, you can pray to the God of heaven. That's what Nehemiah says. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Isn't that so fascinating? Even though it's a little prayer, he still gets the same big God. I prayed to the God of heaven in that moment. You can too. Nehemiah only has the time to pray as he has the time to take a breath. And yet that's what prayer should be for us. It is as natural for the Christian. It should be as natural. And it is as necessary as breathing. He takes a a breath of air before he answers the king. And in breathing in, he says, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. But I want to say that for the most part, the only way you will ever think to turn to God in prayer in that split second of need is if you are already accustomed to going to him anyway, all the time, in any need. Right? And we learned that from Nehemiah too. His prayers, you'll recall, actually started in the previous chapter, the moment that he heard the news uh, uh, from his uh, brother and the situation. Uh, Verse 4, chapter 1. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued what? Fasting and praying before the God of heaven. There's that title again. In other words, friends, you can't survive on help me Jesus prayers. You need a real life of communion with God, but from that, help me Jesus will naturally flow. And when you need it, boy, will it help. So, how do we do great things for God? I'll take it from Nehemiah. The first thing is you pray. Well, if you thought pray was anticlimactic, well, then you'll be really disappointed at the second step, which is you wait. How do you do great things for God? You pray and then you wait. And this actually goes with the previous point because I'm not talking about just a kind of sitting around on the couch waiting for God to drop a grand opportunity in your lap for you to do something amazing for him. I'm talking about a prayerful waiting Uh, We could say a watchful waiting. Remember how we noted that Nehemiah initially received the news of Jerusalem's condition in the month of Kislev. But it's not until the month of Nisan that he makes his request of the king. So there's a four-month gap. What's Nehemiah doing during these four months? Is he waiting for an opportunity to see the king? No, he sees the king every single day. He's his cupbearer. He's there at every meal. No, he's waiting not to see the king, but to see an opportunity. He's waiting for the opportune moment. Maybe he was thinking of that Psalm of David, Psalm 37 and verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way 
and he will exalt you to inherit the land. Isn't that interesting? If you wait on the Lord, the promise from the psalm is he will exalt you to inherit the land. Isn't that what Nehemiah is wanting? To get back to the land? Maybe he's thinking about this. I need to wait on the Lord for this opportune moment. You know, the idea of waiting on the Lord occurs frequently in the Psalms. If you'd like to take a little survey with me through the Psalter, we'll start at Psalm 25, or you can jot jot these down or just listen, but I'm going to run through a number of these, and you'll see this is an important theme for the Christian life. We're starting in Psalm 25, if you want to turn there. Psalm 25 and verse 3. Promises us this, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Skip down two verses. Verse 5, lead me in your truth and teach me for you, the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. At the end of the chapter, verse 21, may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Psalm 27, verse 14, more familiar. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 31 and verse 24. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Flipping over a few chapters, Psalm 37 and verse 9. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. There's that theme again. Waiting on the Lord gives you the land. Next chapter, 38 and verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. Why does the psalmist wait? Because no solution will come from anywhere else other than from God. And so if he hasn't heard it yet from God, he'll continue to wait upon God until he receives that answer. Psalm 39 Verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? We could read it kind of like that. What's this all about? And then the answer. My hope is in you. I wait for you. Verse four, or Psalm 40. Verse 1. I waited patiently. In the Hebrew, literally, in waiting, I waited. In waiting, I waited for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. Almost as though to suggest if you do not wait on the Lord, he won't hear your cry. Sometimes we need that persistence. Psalm 62, verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. I love this verse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Don't wait for anybody else. Of course, here we're talking about trust, right? I'm not suggesting... Husbands, that you do not wait for your wives as you are in the driveway with the car running and they're still not out of the house. And Carrie just says it's the other way around. You do not wait for your spouse as you're trying to get somewhere because the Bible says, I only wait for God. And so you leave them and you have your nice date all by yourself. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about trust. You trust only in God. You wait upon God and God alone. Finally, Psalm 130 in verse 5. And this is just a handful. I didn't give you all of them from the Psalter. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. And so there's this clear biblical principle. The question is, do we practice it? Do we wait on God? And it's a struggle since we are, for the most part, wired for doing. And it's not just that we want um, to get things done 
We want to be the ones to get things done. We want to do the doing. We know best, after all. And that's why waiting on the Lord is an exercise in trust. These are synonyms. Waiting and trust are synonyms, according to the Bible. And we can never do good things for God unless we're waiting for his go-ahead. Unless we're waiting for him to say, now is the time. This is the way to go. If we're left to our own wisdom, we will fly headlong into disaster. And another thing I think that causes us to struggle with the concept of waiting is that we misunderstand it. It is not that it means sitting back, passively twiddling our thumbs. Waiting in a biblical conception is actually an active engagement in the work of God. Actively engaging, leaning forward into God's providence, looking at what God is doing and seeing, is he answering my prayer? You know, maybe there's something that you've prayed for. A a new job uh, or a change at your workplace. Uh, You've prayed for a spouse. You've prayed for an area in the church where you can serve. The list can go on. Things that you long for, things that you've brought to God in prayer. The question then is, now are you keeping your eyes peeled to see how God will provide the answer to that prayer. It's a prayerful waiting. It's a watchful waiting. And, and sometimes we're so dull that God's answer to prayer seems like it hits us upside the head with a two by four. We, wow, where did that come from, that, that answer? And of course, that does happen from time to time. But I would suggest that that shouldn't be the norm. The norm should be we're expecting God to answer. We're ready for God to answer. Why? Because we've been waiting. In waiting, I have waited, the psalmist says. And so when that solution comes, when that answer comes, we say, of course, here it is. And it was well worth the wait. We know that he is faithful. And we must faithfully wait upon him. And then we would see the clear signs of his provision. And so, friends, when we are uh, leaning forward, looking intently in this sort of trusting and expectant way, then when the time comes to act, we'll be ready. And that's the third and final step in how to do great things for God. You pray, you wait, and then you act. You act. You do something. To do great things for God, you pray for his wisdom. You wait for his provision. And then you don't hang back when the opportunity comes. When the prayer is answered. When there's something to be done, you act. It had been four months, but now the opportunity had come. Nehemiah had been prayerfully waiting and waiting And now it actually arrived. The king is asking Nehemiah, what do you want from me? He's opening it up to Nehemiah. Well, Nehemiah could have chickened out. He could have changed his mind. He could have come up with a thousand excuses in that moment. Well, yes, he's asking me, but surely I'm not qualified to be a civil engineer. Uh, Certainly there are better people than me to go and do this work. Uh, No, 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 I don't think this is God answering my prayer. I'm going to keep praying and I'm going to keep waiting and uh, see what happens in a little longer. But Nehemiah does none of those things. He acts decisively and boldly. He says, look in the text, if it pleases the king, 
And if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you may send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. I'm not sure if that was Nehemiah's plan all along. I think it was his plan, as becomes clear from his prayer at the end of chapter 1, to appeal to the king to get something done for Jerusalem. I don't know if Nehemiah was thinking he would be the one to go until that moment, until he had been praying, until he had waited, and now seeing an opportunity, he stepped out in faith and he acted. I'll rebuild it. And he goes a step further. He asked the king for a sort of... Um, well, for military and, po- and political powers to be sent in the region, um, he, he asked for this, this royal permission slip. Right? Write me a letter so that I can show the other people in the area that I'm here on official Persian business. I'm not trying to uh, start uh, an uprising. And so Nehemiah volunteers himself to go to ground zero. He does not ask the king to send someone else. He is... He's not content to remain in the gilded palaces of the Persian capital. Think about what a nice life he had, elevated to this position of, of prestige at the king's right hand. And he had known nothing else his whole life, uh, almost certainly. He lived his whole life in Susa. And yet, he acts and he accepts that what he's about to do will mean great sacrifice. He accepts that. We might be willing to do great things for God if it means great things for us. Fame, maybe a little money, but yes, certainly a reputation that says, that says I, am, I am all that. We might be willing to do great things for God if it means great things for us, but what if it means obscurity? What if it means the risk of danger? What if it means the reality of discomfort? Nehemiah was willing. And do you know tonight, if you're a Christian, it's because there was somebody who was willing to do a great thing for God at great personal cost to himself. If you're not a Christian tonight and you want to know, how do I become a believer? What does it take? What do I need to believe in? You believe in this one individual who saw there was an opportunity to act, but it would mean great sacrifice, and yet he acted anyway. And you say, well, why did he do it, Pastor? And the answer is, because he loves you. But I'm a sinner, Pastor. No, he loves you. I'm I'm a wretched sinner. I'm... You have no idea what I've done. Well, Jesus knows. And he acted anyway. He knew it would mean, he knew your life would mean his death. And yet he came. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. There's Nehemiah lounging in the palace in Susa, ready to go to the rubble of Jerusalem. There's Jesus, all the glory of heaven, willing to come in the poverty of a cattle trough, to be born on straw, laid on straw, and then to go from 
from manger to, to cross. These, these are his earthly thrones. First a manger, a feeding trough, and then an execution device. This is his exaltation. And yet he comes. Why? Why, pastor? Because he loves you. Because he comes to seek and to save the lost. And you are lost. Be found in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form... It's as though that wasn't enough. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Would you be willing to do great things for God if it ended in your death? Well, when we cherish all that the Lord Jesus has done for us, we will be ready to do anything for him. But no, dear Christian, that to do something for Christ, something really meaningful, something really important, it isn't actually all that complicated. It takes prayer. It takes patience. It takes proactivity. Uh, last week, we saw the end of another football season. Uh, rewind some uh, 60 years now, 60-plus years. Uh, the Packers suffered a heartbreaking uh, loss in the Super Bowl to the Philadelphia Eagles. Or as I'm supposed to say, Eagles, because that's where I'm from. Uh, a few weeks later, uh, at the start of a training camp for the 61 season, Coach Vince Lombardi entered the locker room with that team that had made it the whole way to the end, but then they, they, they lost. And he, he comes into the locker room, and he holds up a football, and he says, this is a football. And they all kind of snicker at him. Yeah, coach, we get it. Okay, you're giving us a hard time for the way we played at the end of last year, and you're, you're kind of teasing us. And he says, no, it's no joke. He wasn't, he wasn't demeaning them. Uh, he, he wasn't kidding. He was underscoring the basics, the fundamentals. And so he says, now I want you to open up the playbook. And he started from page one. Lombardi was determined that this team would become the best in the league because they would mask, master the tasks that everybody else took for granted. And six months later, the Green Bay Packers beat the New York Giants 37-0 to win the Super Bowl. So do you want to do great things for God? Then master the basics. This is prayer. This is patience. And as you pray for God to do a work, and as you wait upon him for that opportunity, when it comes... You step forward in faith and you act. And yet, when you've done all of that, and if the Lord has granted success, what will we say? We're just unworthy servants. Did you notice that's essentially what Nehemiah says in verse 8? After this great act has occurred, the great work has begun, but he says, The king granted me what I asked for. For what? Because I was so well polished in my presentation, because I was so well prepared, because I was so skilled and gifted. No, not for anything that Nehemiah did. He says, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let me just say very plainly tonight, friends, we can never do great things for God. But sometimes 
God is so pleased to do great things through us. And that is an immense blessing. What a wonderful thing it is to be a Christian. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the God of heaven, we thank you that we can come to you in prayer. We confess that we do not come often enough. We do ask that as we would have a a true desire to serve you and to be used by you, that you would help us to, to be, as it were, almost less ambitious, that we would rather desire to master the basics of a prayerful life, of a, a watchful and, and waiting life, and a life that is ready to act, even if it means obscurity, even if it means difficulty, even if it means hardship. And we do that because we have the mind of Christ in us. And he is the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself to the point of death on a cross. Oh, Lord, seeing what he did for us, we want to be ready to serve him. And, Lord, in serving him, would you be so pleased to do mighty things through us? Would your good hand be upon us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, and all of God's people said together, amen. We close with number 500. This is a, a humble prayerful hymn uh, that acknowledges that uh, we should have a desire to serve God, uh, but ultimately it is God who works in and through us. Let's stand to sing, Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me.
now receive your Lord's blessing. And now may the God uh, God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who promised is faithful and he will surely do it. Amen.